And take out your Bible, turn over to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. We're in a Lent series. Last week we talked about personal revival from Psalm 51. Today we're going to look at three major significant things that happened during the Holy Week of Jesus. And of course, as Austin said at the beginning, the triumphal entry kicks that off. And uh, since we've already read that together uh, through our Lent responsive reading, that'll be our scripture reading. So let's uh, bow for a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our message today. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray that it will illumine, help us to understand your word as we open it. I pray that you will uh, speak through me. It's not my words that persuade people, but it's the power of your word and your Holy Spirit. Lord, I just pray that as each one of us are here, we all have needs. Some have had a blessed week. Some have had a really difficult week. Some come in brokenhearted. Some come in discouraged. Others rejoicing. And Lord, the great thing is, as we open your word, it meets us where we are individually. So Lord, we pray you'll personalize this message and we pray that you'll uh, work in our hearts and lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was Palm Sunday, and the family got up, and uh, their five-year-old son, Sammy, he was sick. He had a sore throat, and so they called the grandmother, and he stayed home on Palm Sunday. Well, the family came home, and they had these palm branches in their hands. And little Sammy says, well, what are those? And he said, well, this is what they held over Jesus as he walked by. He says, wouldn't you know it? I don't show up one day for church and Jesus shows up at church. (laughs) So you think of Palm Sunday and all that it entails. So we look at that passage of scripture in Luke 19. We're going to unpack what happened on that first Palm Sunday. As Jesus left the Mount of Olives, went into Jerusalem on the road in, he was praised and honored by people as he was headed to the Passover feast later in the week. So first thing you see on your outline, I encourage you to take notes on this, if you would, the significance of the triumphal entry. We're going to look at the Last Supper, and we're going to look at the cross. But first of all, we're going to look at the triumphal entry. Jesus' triumphal entry appears in all four Gospels. So this is a very important marking point in the life of Jesus. This event is seen as starting what many call Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life before he was crucified. Two significant things to point out about this event. The first one is that Jesus is revealing himself as the Messiah, as the Messiah. Now, what's interesting about this, in the past, when Jesus performed a miracle, a healing, when he removed demons from demon-possessed people, he would often tell anyone that was there not to let it known widely what had been done. Some examples in Matthew chapter 12, it says, and many followed Jesus and he healed them all and he ordered them not to make him known. In Matthew 16, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. It wasn't Jesus' time according to God's will to reveal himself as the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of God. There were other times, as we just read, smaller settings where he would reveal himself. We think of in the Gospel of John, the I Ams. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and life. And that was smaller crowds. We know in John 4, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, 
Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah to her. And of course, she went in and shared that with the town. At times, he would do that with his disciples. But now, shortly before his crucifixion on the Sunday, he allowed people to honor him as the Son of God who deserved praise. While the Jewish people recognized him as Savior, they thought as he was coming into Jerusalem on this day, that he was going to deliver them from the Roman government and set up his rule and his reign as prophesied in the Old Testament. We think of Handel's Messiah and the Hallelujah Chorus. George Handel was determined to write something that would be lasting and would lift the spirits of all who heard. Following an extended season of prayer, when he was almost bankrupt and very discouraged, he took a series of scriptures compiled and arranged by his friend Charles Jennings and began his task. And many of you know the story. 23 23 days later, he rose from his labors of victor. He had written the immortal Messiah, an oratorio that has become the widely, most widely performed musical in the world. And of course, thousands of people attend those Messiah uh, recitals during the Christmas season, especially the Hallelujah Chorus. But although Handel received wide recognition in Italy and Germany, his greatest fame sprang from a concert in Ireland. In Dublin on April 13, 1742, at Neil's Music Hall, a choir rises and sang beautifully the Hallelujah Chorus, and it filled the auditorium. And a great crowd had gathered and included King George II of England. And King George was so moved by the Hallelujah Chorus, he stood up and the audience stood with him. And to this day, if you've ever been to uh, a recital, or hear the oratory of Handel's Messiah, and they get to that part, even today people stand in recognition of the honor and the glory of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In hours just before his death, Handel said, I want to die in the hope of rejoining the good God, my sweet Lord and Savior, on the day of his resurrection. Included in the lyrics of Messiah are these words, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, King of Kings and Lord of Lords forever. And it's based on Isaiah chapter 9. This is a section of scripture we read often at Christmas, but it applies here as we think about Jesus coming into Jerusalem as the king of the Jews, and he's being honored in that way. Isaiah said in his prediction, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen and amen. I'm looking forward to that day when Jesus will step foot back on planet earth and set up his rule and reign in perfection here in the new heavens and the new earth after the 1,000 your millennial reign. But in your mind's eye, put yourself there in Jerusalem among these Jewish people. They were oppressed by the Roman government. Much like the Israelites, for 430 years, they were enslaved in Egypt and they were begging God for a deliverer from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was hard, difficult on them. And you know that God allowed Moses to rise up and become the deliverer. And on this Palm Sunday, 
They were looking for a Moses-like deliverer to come and rescue them from the Roman Empire. Jesus received their praise now as he publicly reveals himself as the Messiah. So have your Bible open, look at Luke 19, Luke 19, verse 37. And as Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see the difference? Now he wants it all to be known. He wants his praise and adoration to be made public that he is the king of the Jews. We see here, subpoint: Jesus is revealing himself as the king of the Jews. Continuing to read in Luke 19, look at verse 30, back up a little bit from where we were. In verse 30, it says, saying, Jesus said to his disciples, go into the village in front of you where on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Verse 33, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as they rode along, the people spread their cloaks on the road. It was common practice to honor kings when they had a giant coronation. They would cover the ground many times with their coats to honor the king. He was unworthy to touch the dirt. And we see also that during that time, they would throw their garments down as the king walked on them if they visited, if the king came to visit their town. We see that in 2 Kings chapter 9. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu is king at his coronation. So as the king would visit, it was a common practice to throw those cloaks down and that's what they were doing. This was a symbol of recognition that this person is king and we honor him by giving something as a form of sacrifice, my piece of clothing. Matthew Rogers writes, when I consider the story of that first Palm Sunday, I'm struck by the thought that a coat might not be worth much after a donkey walks on it. In a crowd like that, there was no guarantee that once you laid it down, you're ever going to get it back. For some reason, the text leads us to believe those people probably weren't real interested in coats at that moment when Jesus rode by. Now, these people, many of them, probably very poor and humble, weren't as concerned about coats as they were about their praise. Here's the key. For the people on Palm Sunday praising Jesus might have cost them something. That sounds a bit like sacrifice. The Bible speaks of the sacrifice of our praise to honor him. Fitting, isn't it, for someone who saved our lives by sacrificing his own. So they're sacrificing their coats for the one who would die on the cross and save them from their sins. So on this Palm Sunday, are we giving God our sacrifice of praise? Notice that Jesus is riding a lowly donkey. He's not coming 
into Jerusalem as a sign of victory. He's not riding a white stallion, which is a picture of a conquering king. We see that in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, that his second coming, he will be coming in on a white horse. But not here, he's riding a lowly donkey. And the story of the triumphal entry is one of contrasts. And those contrasts contain applications to us as Christ followers. It's a story of a king who came as a lowly servant on a donkey. He wore the clothes of the poor and the humble. Jesus didn't come to conquer by force the earthly kings, but by love, grace, mercy, and his own sacrifice for his people. It's important to note that his is not a kingdom of armies and splendor, but of lowliness and servanthood. He conquers not nations, but hearts and minds. His message is one of peace with God, not just temporal peace on this planet. From this website, gotquestions.org, here's a quote. If Jesus had made a triumphal entry into our hearts, he reigns there in peace and love. As his followers, we exhibit those same qualities and the world sees the true king living and reigning in triumph in us. Sadly, we see these same folks who on that Sunday were praising him and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, King of the Jews. Just a few days later on Thursday, some of the same crowd was saying, crucify him before Pilate. Those who hailed him as hero would now reject him and call for his death. So here's some things for us to think about. Are we willing to spend something in order to praise our Lord? When we praise God, what are we willing to give up or sacrifice in order to do that? How can we combat being fickle in our faithfulness to God like the crowd was during Christ's Holy Week? Some days we're all about praising God because everything's going well for us. But then a few days later, the circumstances change and we begin to doubt. We begin to question. We see we're much like the people on that Sunday and that Thursday. Are we willing to be content for God's kingdom to be set up in my heart and to be salt and light in this world that's running from God daily as fast as it can? Some things to think about. Here's our application. Jesus came not as a conquering king, but as a lowly servant to reach the hearts of people through grace, mercy, love, and sacrifice at his first coming. Everybody wants Jesus to show up and bring world peace. But his intention at first is to change the hearts, to work from the inside out to change the world. Lots of other events happened in that Holy Week. Right after the reading of this, we see Jesus wept for Jerusalem because he knew that his own people were going to reject him. And he said, if only you knew who I was and what my goal was to save you and to bring the gospel to you. We read about the withering of the unfruitful fig tree, the cleansing of the temple. Jesus said, this is my house of prayer. And he removed the money changers. Jesus uh, did all that on Monday. On Tuesday, Jesus predicts his death, burial, and resurrection. He challenges the religious leaders with their hypocrisy. On Tuesday that week, he had a conversation with the disciples on signs that would appear to point to his second coming. On Wednesday, Jesus went and taught in the temple. The religious leaders put together the plot to execute Jesus. And Jesus sent some of his disciples to prepare the upper room 
for Passover, which would be his last supper with his disciples. So let's look second of all, the significance of the last supper. The significance of the last supper. Look at Luke chapter 22. You can follow along on the screen, but if you want to turn over there, Luke chapter 22, verse 14. Luke 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And Jesus took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among themselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to betray him. This important event is called the Last Supper. It was the Last Supper that Jesus would eat with his disciples before he was betrayed and arrested. It was also the Passover meal that the Jewish people uh, celebrated to remember uh, the, the death angel passing over in Egypt and allowing them to uh, avoid their firstborn being killed. And then, of course, they were delivered and moved out that next day. And they had their long desired freedom. We can't get into details due to time, but the Last Supper begins with Jesus doing the, performing the lowly duty of a servant. He washed his disciples' feet and he explained to them that they are to serve one another out of love. The Last Supper was Jesus predicting his death on the cross. The disciples would not understand the significance of these events and what Jesus said until after he rose again from the dead. And the Last Supper, as we practice today, asks us to remember the bodily sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for the redemption of man and the forgiveness of sin. So we have to remember, remember his sacrifice on the cross. That's what the Last Supper is all about, remembrance. Hebrews 12:2, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. Think about that. Who for the joy that was set before him. There was two aspects of that. He was going to rise again from the dead after he died. He was going to be exalted. He was going to be back with his heavenly father. But the joy set before him also was knowing that you personally would have the opportunity to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why he went to the cross. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. It was the cruelest way to be executed. It was also the most shameful way to be killed and executed in that society. And so Jesus chose the worst case scenario to be executed because he loved us so much. He laid down his life as the Lamb of God. And the symbol of the cross was a scourge. 
It was a curse to the people of that time. It was for those who were just criminals with heinous crimes. But we embrace the cross today as Christ followers because it's a picture of God's demonstration of love to man to take our place on the cross. As we say at this time, when we take communion, the bread represents the body that Jesus laid down as a lamb led to slaughter. He was beaten, humiliated by the soldiers. They put a purple robe on him after he was beaten and a crown of thorns. They began to punch him and tell him to prophesy, and they humiliated him by spitting in his face. Jesus used something common to the people of that day, bread, which was a staple of their daily diet, to remind them to become a symbol of a sacrifice for whoever will believe on him on the cross, the finished work of the cross. And that cup represents the blood that was shed by him to pay the cost of our sins. We talked last week about what sin does to the Father, the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus paid it all so we could be saved from hell and to be restored to who God created us to be. Remember what he went through for us. We're going to talk about that more in a moment when we get to Good Friday. But we remember his sacrifice on the cross. Then we rejoice in the new covenant. We rejoice in the new covenant. Jesus said that in my blood is the new covenant. There is so much that could be said here about the old and the new covenant. But just to summarize quickly, the old covenant was the law that was given to Israel through Moses. The old covenant that God established was his people required strict obedience to the Mosaic law beginning with the Ten Commandments and then later the 613 ordinances that came out of that. Because the wages of sin is death, the law required that if you broke the law, you had to perform daily sacrifices to atone for your sin. But Moses, through whom God established the Old Covenant, also anticipated the New Covenant. In one of his final addresses to the nation of Israel, Moses looks forward to a time when Israel will be given a heart to understand in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Moses predicts that Israel would fail in keeping the old covenant in Deuteronomy 29, but then in Deuteronomy 30, he sees a time of restoration with the new covenant. And at that time, Moses said, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and to live. The new covenant involves a total change of heart so that God, God's people are naturally pleasing him because of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel also talked about the end of the old covenant and the coming of the new. In Ezekiel 36, it says, and I give you a new heart and a new spirit. We looked at this verse last week, and I put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Three things that Ezekiel says here. He's gonna, God's going to give us a new heart with the new covenant. And we're going to be transformed. He's also going to give us a new spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit to live within us, which thirdly enables us to live out holy, righteous lives. He's saying that song, all sufficient merit, it's not anything we've done. It's all that he's done for us. And so Ezekiel is giving us an example of that new covenant. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law 
and then went beyond it by putting the Holy Spirit in the hearts of those who believe and giving us the word of God to follow. It tells us in Galatians, if you have your King James Version, says the law was a schoolmaster. Other versions say it was a tutor to bring us to Christ, but it wasn't the thing that could accomplish it. It's the new covenant. And so in Ephesians 2, God, through his death on the cross, tore down the dividing wall of hostility. The Jews were to have nothing to do with the Gentiles until the Holy Spirit came. And the cross tore it down, and the two becomes one new man. And this new covenant begins the process. Jews and Gentiles who trust Jesus as Savior becomes one new man equal in God's sight. So the fulfillment of the new covenant will be seen in two places in the future. On earth during the thousand year reign of Christ and in heaven for all of eternity. And thirdly, the significance of the Lord's Supper is to receive the gift of salvation. Under the new covenant, we're given the opportunity to receive salvation as a free gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone would boast. But we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. And our responsibility is to exercise faith in Christ, the one who fulfilled the law on our behalf and brought an end to the law's sacrifices by becoming the final sacrifice. Through the life-giving Holy Spirit who lives in all believers, we share in the inheritance. The Bible says in Romans 8, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You know what a joint heir is? It means that everything that person owns, you also get to share in that as well. And we enjoy a permanent, unbroken relationship with God. So that leads us to our time of communion today. I hope that all of you have a communion service here. Does anybody need one before we, okay, we've got one person. Steve Brettauer's coming. Right here, Chris Heddington needs one, and Jeremy. And so as we think of the Lord's Supper, this is our pause in the middle of the sermon as we're talking about this, to reflect, to apply this to our lives. So communion is open to anyone who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not just for the members of our church, because if you know Christ as Savior, you're part of the universal church, the believers of Christ. It's also open to you to come if you are, uh, have a heart that's confessed and clean before God, confessed of your sin and clean before him. As we talked about in this point, that Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sin. And so in a moment, we're going to pause and we're going to give you a moment to let the Holy Spirit show you any area of sin in your life to confess because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said we have to come to the Lord's table with examined hearts, with clean hearts before him. And as we, we come, it's to be a time of renewal, remembrance, and rededication of our lives. As always, the bread represents the body of Christ, the, the, the cup the grape juice represents the blood of Christ as we take of these elements. Let's pause for a moment of, moment of silent prayer for you to ask God to show you any areas of sin in your life to confess before we take the elements. I'm going to ask one of our elders, Mike Fenley, if he would pray for the bread.
saw fit to have Jesus come and be the bread of life for us. And Lord, for nearly 2,000 years, Jewish families celebrated that Passover. They would come to that third cup and they would break the bread. They would take half of it and wrap it in a linen cloth and they would hide it for the children. And then the children would be sent through the house to try and find it. And the child that found it got a gift. And Lord, we look back and we now understand that symbolic gesture that Jesus' body was broken on the cross and that he was wrapped in linen cloths and that he was hidden in a tomb. But then he came back to life. And those of us who discover him get a gift and that gift is eternal life and our forgiveness of our sins. So we thank you, Lord, for giving us Jesus, the bread of life. Amen. On that night, Jesus took the bread, broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. Father, we're so grateful for that verse in Hebrews 9. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, payment, forgiveness of sin. We thank you that you were the lamb led to slaughter, that they didn't take your life, but you laid it down willingly because you looked through eternity and you saw us even today and you wanted us to be in heaven with you and to have the relationship that you anticipated and planned for us to have except for sin that entered into this world. So Lord, as we take this cup, may we be mindful of the sacrifice of the great demonstration of love you showed for us. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus took the cup and gave it to his disciples and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is the new covenant in my blood, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Let's drink the cup together. So back to the message as we get to the application here of the significance of the Lord's Supper. Jesus wants us to reflect often on his bodily sacrifice on the cross and his blood that was shed that brings complete forgiveness of our sin. We do that at communion. We'll celebrate that Good Friday evening. We celebrate the first Sunday of the month, but It's not just communion. We can spend time reflecting throughout our weeks about the amazing sacrifice of love for us. Well, we know that after the Passover meal on Thursday night, Judas left the meal to betray Christ. Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he was in deep and mournful prayer. There was the arrest, the mockery of the trials throughout the night, which was illegal because according to Jewish law, they were to have... Uh, courts during the daytime in public for all to see. Peter denies Christ early on Friday morning. Jesus comes before Pilate. He sends him off to be beaten. They bring him back, and finally Pilate sentences him to death. They put the purple robe in the crown of thorns. And then Pilate says, take him away to be crucified. So we get to our last point, the significance of Good Friday. In Luke chapter 23, verse 26, and as they led Jesus away, 
They seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Jesus was so exhausted, so emaciated from the beating that almost took his life, that he couldn't even carry his own cross to Golgotha, to the skull, to the hill. Jump down to verse 32 of chapter 23. In Luke, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments and the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at Jesus saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that said, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And that criminal said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The significance of the cross, first of all, is to take our punishment for our sin. Jesus was on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. approximately local time, according to what the Bible says. And in 1 Peter 2.24, says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He was our substitute. It would be like if we were executed and sentenced to going to the electric chair, Jesus would say, I will do that for you and you get to go free. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's a direct quote from Isaiah 53, 5. By your wounds, you will be healed. A payment was required for sin. Romans 6 says, for the wages of sin is death. Andy Stanley wrote a a book saying, how good is good enough? Guess what? We can't ever measure up. It says in Matthew 5.48, Jesus said, be perfect, therefore, as my heavenly Father is perfect. And I fail that test every single day. But the good news in Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Think about that. Put your name in there. You have been crucified. Spiritually, you and I, we were there at the cross. But because of salvation that comes by faith through grace, we no longer live for ourselves. He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives within me. We have that new nature that is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And we live daily to honor and glorify God the Father in Jesus Christ. Why? It says here, because he loved us and he died for us. That's a great verse to personalize and put your name in. Second of all, he died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God. There had to be a payment for sin. God, who is holy and just and doesn't, you know, tolerate evil, doesn't know evil. There was a payment that had to be made in John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is 
finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That Greek word, it is finished. The telestai means paid in full. The payment for sin once for all. No more sacrifices were necessary. Jesus laid down his life for us and he chose the nails out of love for you because he could not bear the thought of spending eternity without you in heaven with him. Never forget that. The New Testament believer trusts in the finished work on the cross and the power of the resurrection to overcome sin, to overcome death, to overcome Satan for his or her salvation. And when a person becomes a believer in Christ, born again, he or she has the blood of Christ applied to their life to remove the stain of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. By going to the cross, he took your sin and he gave us his righteousness. And then lastly, to demonstrate his love for us. God didn't just say he loved us. God showed us he loved us by willing to, being willing to go to the cross. A verse of scripture that I can't totally grasp because I'm not looking at it from God's perspective, but Romans 8.32 says this, He, God, who did not spare his own son, now think about it, the most precious thing to God was his son. And he gave the very best. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We have a great God, a loving God, a loving father, who gave his all, his son, and now after we receive Christ, he's willing to bless us and minister to our lives. God wants to give us more abundantly on earth as we find purpose and meaning for why God created us in the first place. We have peace with God and we walk in confidence with him. We are eternally secure. We're called his sons and daughters and the Bible says we're even called a friend of God. There was a certain medieval monk announced that he would be preaching next Sunday evening on the love of God. And as the shadows fell and people came into the cathedral and the light was failing in the cathedral, the congregation sat in their seats. And in the darkness of the altar, the monk lighted a candle and carried it up to the crucifix. First of all, he illumined the crown of thorns. Next, the two wounded hands. Next, his feet. And then the marks where the spear went into his side. And hush that fell, he blew out the candle and he left the cathedral. There was nothing else to say but to focus on the sacrifice of Christ. The Bible tells us that after Jesus died, a centurion later came, broke the legs of the two criminals crucified on either side of Jesus. And knowing that Jesus had died and to fulfill the prophecy that no bone would be broken, he stuck a sword into the side of Jesus and Water and blood came out as a sign that he was dead. Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Pharisees, came and took his body off the cross, prepared it hastily for burial as the sun was setting for the Sabbath, and took Jesus' body, placed it in the tomb, and rolled the stone in front of it. And on Saturday, the disciples hid in fear and despair, wondering how all that had happened had come to this, the death of their hope. The German theologian Jürgen Moltmann expresses in a single sentence the great span from Good Friday to Easter. It's in fact a summary of human history, past, present, and future. He said, God weeps with us 
so that we may someday laugh with him. That's really what it was about. Those disciples were hunkered down, locked inside, wondered if they were going to be crucified next, wondered what was going to happen next. And of course, next week we celebrate the risen Christ. I encourage you to be here on Friday night at 6 p.m. as we share a Good Friday service together, focus on the purpose and the power of the cross. Our application is this, that Jesus went to the cross in obedience to the will of God for our earthly and eternal benefit. Some people come to faith in Christ and they look forward to heaven only, but he wants to give us abundant life here on this planet as well. Our key thought is that God went through all this and more to win our hearts for all of eternity. Think about that as you enter into this week, which we call the Holy Week, that he did it to win our hearts for all of eternity. Let's bow our head and hearts in prayer, if we would. As we think of this Holy Week, as we think of communion that we just participated in, I hope you see how personal, how individual, that Jesus thought of you when he was on that cross. We know in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he was praying for those who would believe him who had not seen him. May this week, you make the events of this Holy Week personal in your experience with him. Father, we come before you. We thank you for all the symbols, all the pictures of this Holy Week. So many more things we could have gone into, but Lord, we're just grateful, most of all, for your willingness to be a lowly servant king to come in and to be our substitute so that we could have a relationship with you and that because we have a good vertical relationship with you, Lord, we have good horizontal relationships here on earth because you give us the ability through your Holy Spirit to relate well with one another. Lord, help us to revel in the forgiveness of sin and the clear conscience and all that that means. And we pray and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.